0: It is good to have you all with us to look out and see all of the red and pink out there. I went to my daughter's Valentine's Day party at her second grade class on Friday, and I think every girl there was wearing some heart on her shirt one way or the other. This is not only Valentine's Day, but it is our pay attention to love day. A special celebration here at the Ethical Society, and as far as I know, one that is unique to WES, unique to the Washington Ethical Society. Unlike some of our other festivals like Winter Festival and Stone Soup and Spring Festival, which we share with many other ethical societies and other congregations too, actually, that celebrate those particular holidays and traditions, I think that Pay Attention to Love Day is ours alone. It was created as part of our liturgical year with the leadership of Mary Herman, who served as community leader and leader for congregational life here for many years. And it was created as a whole day to focus on celebrating love, and not just not just valentines kind of love. That was explained to me very clearly when I came here by many of you. You know, I came into this congregation eight years ago to find all of these wonderful and rich traditions and many people who wanted to make sure that I fully understood <laughs> the deep importance of each one and exactly how it goes. And so it was clear this was no hallmark celebration. Pay attention to Love Day. This was a day that was about love of every kind, about the love that we have and that we create for others, about receiving love and giving love in every aspect of our lives. Yesterday afternoon, we held a hospitality workshop for about 20 West members. Much of the welcome team was there, many of the ushers. I see many of your faces here today. And in fact, when I came in, they told me they'd been practicing what they learned yesterday. So if you are a visitor, you will probably have 10 people say to you at the end of the day, thank you for coming. We're really glad that you joined us today, because that's one of the things we decided we wanted to add. So I'll say it too. Thank you for coming. We're really glad you joined us today. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Mora. We'll see we hope to see you next week. That's right. <laughs> Maura was listening better than I was. Well, we we talked about hospitality and welcome, and we talked about it in the context of love, of giving and receiving love. And so as part of that, the group brainstormed what they thought love was, this group of 20 West members. And I wanted to share with you, I was typing away on my phone as fast as I could, I wanted to share with you what they said. They said love is acceptance. It's comfort. It's appreciation. It's fascination. Isn't that a good one? Someone noted that often... Sometimes, love is sex. She then did say that wasn't really applicable to hospitality at West in kind of a welcoming. So I wanted to be clear about what the workshop was and wasn't yesterday and reassure our visitors. But still, it was on the list. It's wanting the best for someone. Love is radical hospitality, someone said, not expecting anything in return. It's feeling that you are your authentic self when you are with that person. It's desire, the theme of the month for February, and soulmate, someone said. Love is connected being connected to everyone and seeing the dignity of each person. That's ethical culture love, they said. It's accountability to someone, love. It's self-sacrifice and empathy. It's knowing another person. I loved the answers that folks came up with yesterday in that workshop. I loved the way that they described what love meant to them. Makes me want to love and be loved by all of you. Wes, folks, I think are thoughtful about love, as you all are about almost everything, (laughs) thoughtful about discerning what exactly love means to us. And that is as it should be, I think. In our tradition, in the ethical culture tradition, we insist upon the worth and dignity of every single person. And what, after all, is that if it is not loving them? Not trying to love as broadly as possible. Trying to make space in our hearts for the possibility that each person is lovable, worthy of love, each person is loved. To be, in other words, a lover extraordinaire, the biggest kind. That kind of agape love. You know, the love for all humanity that is the core of so many religious traditions at least when they are being their very best selves. I know, too, that West members don't just talk about love, they don't just think about it deeply, but they take the charge to love, to hold on to the worth and dignity of each person very seriously. Over the years, I've had conversations with some of you about the challenge of that, sometimes talking very personally and intimately about family members or friends that you are struggling to love, struggling to hold on to their worth to understand what that might mean. Sometimes talking about political figures or people with whom you vehemently disagree, how, you say to me, can I see worth in this person? Do I really have to? Can I get a pass this time? <laughs> no, unfortunately. This is, I think, our leap of faith, and I think it is a really big one, <laughs> to try to hold on to the possibility that each person indeed has worth within them, that they are in some way lovable, to accept the invitation to be loving. I think, too, there's a part of who we are, a part of this community, where we see ourselves as a place where people can come together, where we can encourage people to see the worth and dignity in each other. It's not just our practice, but a practice we want to foster in the world. You know what I mean? Those of you who were here six, eight, ten years ago, when I first arrived, I remember um, there was the SPARC series. Many of you remember that. I'm looking at some of you who were instrumental in founding it, actually. The SPARC series was bringing people together for civil discourse on um, challenging topics. So topics that folks disagreed about, political topics or civil topics that people disagreed about and then kind of... Folks from two different sides of the issue were brought together and a moderator tried to create a space for civil discourse. And I think that it was such a Wes endeavor and a great one. It was successful for a number of years. The idea that we would be a place where we come together, where we can see each other's worth even when we think differently. We are not, of course, the only ones to have thought of this possibility Anthony Bourdain, who's an author and chef and TV personality, some of you are nodding your heads and know who he is, has a, a line that's been oft quoted, I don't have to agree with you to like and respect you. And certainly that's something many of us try to live. It goes a little further even if you quote John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of what is now Methodism, and um And he wrote, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. I think in so many ways, a tradition like ours, perhaps also that of the Methodists and other traditions, that's what we feel we are about, right? We may think differently from each other, but we love together. And yet... You know there's always an and yet when we get to a conclusion this early. I wasn't possibly going to just leave it there. Oh, we can think differently, but Lovela, like, great, good, check. There's a different quote, one that has been going around Twitter and Facebook for the last several months, I think, one that comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement, and that has been an arresting idea for me. It, it was tweeted by someone who tweets as son of Baldwin, so think, um, think James Baldwin there when you think of son of Baldwin, James Baldwin, the author of The Fire Next Time, and notes of a native son. And here is what he said, keep, keep in mind John Wesley's quote, though we may not think alike, surely we can love alike. Here is what the son of Baldwin said. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and the denial of my humanity and right to exist. Unless. For those of us who are Sunday morning preachers and speakers, the need to hold that quote as true as the one from John Wesley is a hard and yet demanding thing, Th- something that, that is demanded of us. What does it mean to us, I wonder, that, that quote, unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and the denial of my humanity and right to exist. How does that add to our conversation about love? Love. It posits, I think, that there's a time when love perhaps is not possible, or not yet, at least. When systems of oppression and denials of humanity from one negates the possibility that the other can respond with love. It posits that John Wesley perhaps did not see the full truth. I think about those words from Wesley the Methodists as you may know are one of the Protestant denominations that are right now consumed by a heart-rending conversation over many years about LGBTQ rights, specifically about whether they can perform same-sex marriages and whether clergy can be ordained as clergy if they are um I think in the Methodist rule book uh I think you are allowed to be gay, but not to practice. <laughs> so, so not then. <laughs> so not to be fully themselves. Right? And, and they're in the midst of this heartrending conversation. They have been for many years. And I went to a Methodist seminary, so I know a lot of folks who are part of that conversation. And I have watched how it has, um, how it has developed over the years, I think it is a conversation with three sides right now. There's one side saying that no one who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer is allowed in. That's one side. That's the no side. There's another side, they call it the third way, actually, that says, well, we can think differently from each other but love alike that tries to embrace those words from John Wesley, that says, well, well, we're big enough. We can have people that disagree, but we can stay in communion and connection with each other. And I understand, I understand that side. I understand the desire to stay connected in a community that you care about despite this deeply fractured opinion. But then there's the third side, The third side that says, "Except that you are erasing me. You are harming me. And so no, this time we cannot agree to disagree. We cannot hold different opinions but love each other and stay in connection. No, we have to choose love together on this one. Because here is the thing here is the thing that calls for that side. It's that religious communities and ethical communities like ours are places of agape love, sure, that love that embraces all of humanity, the thing that we want most in the world, but they are also places of justice and resistance, or at least they should be. Felix Adler, who founded Ethical Culture in 1876, could be seen, you know, as one of those agape love people, one of those, we are a community broad enough kind of people, and he was. We often quote him as saying, that that here in an ethical society we can have diversity in creed so we believe differently the song spoke to this so beautifully this morning we can believe differently and yet we have unanimity indeed we act together and so so you can see in that sort of that idea we can think differently but love alike but actually what he what he says isn't that we'll love alike but that we'll act alike adler created a movement a tradition founded on the idea of action, of making a difference in the world, of changing the world around us. He was instrumental, he and many others, in the early ethical society in creating the first child labor laws, being part of the creation of the NAACP and the ACLU. Do you think he loved those into being alone? No, they were hard won. There were people who thought they should not be, that we didn't need child labor laws, that it wasn't important to, to protect the most vulnerable among us, and he fought for them. He fought for them. Ethical culture started as an alternative, as a countercultural movement in many ways. It was neither traditionally religious nor was it purely secular and materialistic. It, it was what he thought the world needed to create new possibilities, to resist what was already there, an alternative to the excess, the waste, the human suffering, and the indignity that he saw in the world around him. In fact, many religious movements began in this way, as communities of resistance, We think of early Christian communities as being about Jesus's message of radical love and they were, they were, they were about what is often called the beloved community or the creation of the kingdom of God on earth. But that wasn't all hearts and flowers. It was a work of resistance to the prevailing order to the empire. I've been reading a book recently, which I really love. It requires a fair amount of translation. It's written by a Christian pastor, but um, but any book about religion that has a raised fist on the front cover, you know, is going to be kind of pretty much up my alley. This is uh, called uh, Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance. It's by Robin Myers, and I recommend it to you. It was adapted from a series of lectures he gave at Yale Divinity School. Reverend Myers talks in this book, in Spiritual Defiance, about what he sees as the death of the church. He says, here is what should be writ large at the top of the church's death certificate. The beloved community was born in resistance to the established order of death and indignity. It was concealed like leaven in the imperial loaf, germinating as a secret and subversive colony of heaven, a body of noncompliance with the principalities and the power. Now we are as compliant as the subjects of any empire. Embracing what we are taught to value and resisting nothing that threatens our comfort, our success, our reputation, our safety. He goes on to talk about what he thinks has happened to the American church. He's talking now about kind of mainline Protestant American churches, right? So uh, Methodists, um, Episcopal, Baptist, Presbyterian. He writes, when was the last time anything dangerous happened in the American church? Does anyone head off to Sunday morning service around here and look in the rearview mirror to see if they are being followed? Do clergy encrypt their sermons as if they were corrupting leaven to keep them out of the hands of the NSA or the FBI or the CIA? When was the last time anyone worried about a sermon showing up on WikiLeaks? He is bemoaning the reality that, in his mind, the American church has become one of the empire, has lost its resisting impulse, that impulse of the early Christian communities to resist the order around them, the empire, the order of death and indignity around them. And so he offers a call to the church, to congregations, to rise up and be those cells of resistance again. The Washington Ethical Society actually has quite a history of resistance. Some of you might be familiar with that history. You perhaps have looked in our archives or know for yourself the time that we were investigated by the FBI. It turns out that it was a little bit, um, a little bit uh, of a mix-up. There were a series of get-to-know-you parties that featured a special dessert, which was a, called a pavlova. Uh, Dessert, and um, it's like a like a lot of meringue. I think very airy. Yes, I'm getting nods. It's like meringue. Okay, and um, and so they were called Pavlova parties because there was always this Pavlova dessert there, and um, it was a time of anti-communist work in America, and so people got a little bit nervous because Pavlova obviously is a Russian name, and uh, we're worried about what exactly we were doing at these Pavlova parties. It turns out we were like welcoming newcomers or something, having a good time and eating, not surprisingly, we were eating. We do like to eat here. But I've read the documentation, actually. I've read the letters. Uh, A number of years back, somebody filed with the Freedom of Information Act to get the reports from the FBI to read what it is that they had documented here. And they talk not just about the Pavlova parties, which turned out to be sort of not such a big thing, but they talk about some of the work that we did. They talked about our civil rights work and our work against the Vietnam War. They were checking up. We were doing things that were just this side of dangerous. We were worthy of investigation. And so over the years, I have heard people say, well, what are we doing now that is worthy of investigation? What are we called to do now that is anti-empire? that is changing the world order, changing the order in D.C., resisting, as Robin Myers puts it in his book, the established order of death and indignity. So, obviously, my point here is, is really we're a community of resistance. We can forget about all of that love stuff, right? Better go tell our kids to stop decorating hearts, which is what they've been doing all morning. Of course not. <laughs> of course, we are also a community of love. Of course, we are somehow. We must be both. Remember, I mentioned that over the years, folks have come to me struggling with what to do about people that they, that they really can't see worth in. You know, people that they really have trouble with, political figures, personal figures, well, my Facebook feed blew up last night. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen the announcement, and if not, I guess you'll find out right now that, um, that Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died last night quite suddenly. And it was interesting to see the reactions that people posted on Facebook, and to see especially the reactions of folks here, to see what we were wrestling with. Justice Scalia worked against so many of the values that we seek to create in the world here at the Ethical Society. He did so much damage to those values. And and so I saw relief from some. Relief that a person who you have experienced as destructive to our country was no longer in a position to destroy. And yet, at the same time, I saw you recognizing that still this was a human being who had died. A human being who was loved and loved himself. And I'm sorry, I know it is hard, but you're going to hear from me, it has to be both somehow. Relief that the destruction that this person with this ability to destroy is no longer able to do it, and also sadness that a person who loved and was loved has died. At least we have a role model in the notorious RBG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia were friends. They shared a love of opera and apparently a love of riding on elephants together. I encourage you to Google that image and enjoy. It is hard for me to fathom how this could have been true. These two people whose values were so radically different. One person so deeply committed to values I hold dear, I mean... Heck, half my friends have Ruth Bader Ginsburg-like action figures, you know? <laughs> the notorious RBG in the house. And one person deeply committed against them, it seemed to me. Somehow both must be true. Martin Luther King Jr. was all about that, I think, all about Love and resistance to, when we celebrated Martin Luther King Day here at West, we talked about the radical Dr. King, the non-sanitized version, about choosing not to see only the love but the resistance as well, and it was a deep resistance to the death and indignity of the world, and it was wrapped up, too, in love. Alice Walker published a list recently called How to Be a Love Activist. She wrote, Recommit every day. When you're on a mission of peace, your commitment to nonviolence is tested daily. So every day you're called to recommit to who you are, to keep your heart open, and to stand your ground as a peacemaker. Stand for truth, she said. When you stand with and for the marginalized and abused, bring a kind heart, an open mind, and a good conscience. The suffering must be seen, and the wounded must be embraced. Both and. I was joking recently on staff that the punchline to every single platform I give is both and. Are religions different from each other, or do they share one single core message? Well, it's both and, folks. Should we have expectations for our lives, or should we let go of them and live free? It's both and, too. This is, though, I think the biggest both and yet. And in fact, today, it may be more than both and. It may be something like they're one and the same, love and resistance, Cornell West you might remember said justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. It seems appropriate to me somehow on Valentine's Day to be talking about resistance. The origin of Valentine's Day comes from a number of sources, like the origins of most things. It takes a whole Roman fertility ritual that people didn't want to give up, so, you know, just got subsumed with everything else. And and then, of course, a few different saints named Valentine, it turns out. But one of them, the most famous, was martyred for basically resisting Roman rule, for freeing early Christians who had been imprisoned, for setting the empire on its head, and now, when we celebrate Valentine's Day, somehow we participate in the empire. We have taken this story of resistance and sanitized it into chocolates. I'm not against chocolate, by the way. Let me just... Is my husband here? I'm not against chocolate. Just that's a thing. Our pay attention to love day, I think, has always been about Resistance. It's been about resisting the version of Valentine's Day that we are sold, the heteronormative, patriarchal, cisgender, solely romantic version of love, which is most of what you can find out there. What we need, what we are, is a community that not only embraces both resistance and love, but knows the secret that they are in fact the same thing. A love that is resistance to death and indignity. A resistance that is love. We need then to be love activists, as Alice Walker calls on us, To embrace the inherent worth of every person, to seek the love in them, even as we work to create a world where all can be loved, which necessarily means resisting the empire. In science fiction and fantasy novels, love is so often the magical element, you know? The old, deep magic that overturns all the other magic, like in Narnia. Or the thing that the villain has failed to reckon with, like in Harry Potter. Those villains, they always forget about the secret weapon of love. Those stories know that love isn't just about sweetness and light, but about the creation of the world that we long for. The world that resists indignity and that embraces life. So this morning, pay attention to love. Pay attention to every place that it needs to come into your life, the places where it's hard to find a little love for someone. And pay attention to love's power. Pay attention to its ability to change the world. Be a people of resistance and love, a people that know they are the same thing.